The scripture passage this morning is Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This has been the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a privilege for me to be here with you. Uh, my name is David Duran. I'm the church planting resident here at Doxa. Uh, Lord willing, at the end of the year, my family and others will be moving to metro, the metro Boston area to begin the work of planting a church. And I've heard people say, I may have even mentioned this up here before, but uh, planting a church in New England is twice as expensive and it takes twice as long. And I say that to say we're so grateful for the support and the encouragement that we have continued to receive from all of you. And we know that we're going to continue to receive the encouragement and support uh, once we move. And um, we're excited to see what the Lord is going to do. Um, real quickly, I want to share something with you that the Lord has been doing. And really, this is an answer to prayer. And I hope that it will provide a little bit of encouragement for you. Um, so for those of you who receive our, our emails um, from my family that we send out every month regarding the, the church plant, uh, you know that for a long time, really for the better part of two years, we've been praying that God would build relationships between our family and our church here at Doxa and also other churches in Massachusetts. Um, partnership between churches is essential and it's, it's biblical when it comes to church planting. Well, there's a lot of stories I could tell about this, but I, I just want to share one with you. Um, every single morning, Sunday morning, every single Sunday morning, without fail, I receive a text message from a man named Ron, who is a member of a church just outside of Boston. And his text always encouraged me, but I think also his text is going to encourage you as well. He sent one to me even this morning. Um, but let me read this one to you real quick. This is a recent one. Just listen to what Ron says, and be encouraged. He said, good morning, David. Christ rules and reigns unchallenged. Blessings to the saints at Doxa. May the steadfast authority of King Jesus be sung, confessed, preached, and prayed at Doxa today. Grace and peace. How encouraging is it that as we're praying for God to do something in New England, we have people up there who are praying for us, even praying for Doxa Church by name. I hope that that fact encourages you today. Well, let's pray together here, and then we're going to look at God's Word. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, what a joy it is for us to worship you. As we sing, as we pray, as we look at your Word, as we take communion together, create in us a collective heart of worship. We all have idols that fight for our worship. They fight for our attention. And Father, we ask that you would reveal to us any and all things that are distracting us from being a people fixed on you. Captivate us with your beauty. Captivate us with your glory and your holiness. Surround us, God, with your loving presence. We do not want to move one inch outside of your presence. We desire for you to commune with us by your Spirit this morning. God, you are our rock 
and our fortress. Jesus, you are our Savior and friend. Holy Spirit, you are our helper. We call out to you, our triune God. We're begging for more of you. Wake your church from its slumber, Lord. Breathe life into our dry and weary bones. Father, we pray that you would, you would do this for us, not just the church at large, but for us. Now we pray for other gospel preaching and gospel living churches across the Grand Strand. We pray that you would give your body here a fresh outpouring of your spirit. Your church needs an awakening, and we ask in Jesus' name that you would do it. We also lift up Pastor Darcy Owens in Clear Creek, Clear Creek Evangelical Free Church in Eastern Kentucky, where they're grieving in such a deep way after the flooding that's taken place there, where we pray for the people in their community who are still unaccounted for. We pray for the families who have lost people. We ask, Lord, that you would comfort them, and in this time, uphold them, Lord, with your righteous right hand. Be their strength and their refuge. As we open your word together, remind us, Lord, remind us that what David says in Psalm 19 is true, that your law, your instruction is perfect and it revives our souls, that your decrees are more to be, desi to be desired more than gold, and that by keeping them there is great reward. May we not just know that in our minds, but oh God, may we experience that in our lives. We ask that the Holy Spirit would give us a supernatural ability to understand what's in our passage today. We ask that He would apply these scriptures in our hearts in a way that I never could. Bless us as we worship with our hearts and our minds. In Christ's name, amen. January 2008. I'm sitting in my dorm room on the campus of Michigan State University, and I am highly motivated. I'm in a little bit of pain as I recover from a torn labrum in my left shoulder. I have to sleep sitting up in a, in a recliner because it's too painful to lay down, but I am no less determined. For the first time in my life, I am going to read the entire Bible cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation. I grew up attending church. I became a Christian when I was young. At this point in my life, I've read much of the Bible, but I've never read the entire thing through. Not in one sitting, but, after, but over, over the course of the year. And now, I'm finally ready to do it. By the way, I wasn't doing this because my pastor told me I needed to do it, or someone laid a guilt trip on me about how I need to be reading my Bible. I was doing this because I wanted to. I wanted to have a better understanding of the character of God. I wanted to know more about the teachings of Jesus. And I wanted to see in greater depth how I should live my life as a Christian. So I wanted to know, what does the Bible have to say? Now I knew this journey, it was not going to be an easy one. There's a lot of history between Genesis and Revelation. There's a lot of different genres and writing styles. There's, there's just a lot going on, but I'm ready. For the first few weeks, I'm reading through Genesis. No problem. Love it. Exodus, great. Stories about Moses, the Israelites being delivered from slavery in Egypt. That's awesome. 
I'm getting a little lost, last few chapters of Exodus, but I'm hanging tough. And then comes Leviticus. A couple of chapters in, and I'm finished. None of what I'm reading makes any sense. I can't see how any of this relates to me. There's a bunch of talk about sacrifice and priests and laws, and I'm lost, and I'm through. That wonderful book of Leviticus, the graveyard of Bible reading plans. (laughs) Well, this morning, we're finishing up a five-week series that I don't think has a name officially, but what we've been doing is hearing from different speakers preach from passages that they have found particularly meaningful and important. And as it stands now, for the next five weeks after today, Randy will be preaching from passages that focus on the vision of our church. So you're really going to want to be here um, for the next five weeks. Um, Now I know this morning during our scripture reading, we only read two verses from Leviticus. But my intention today is to preach a sermon for you that covers the entire book of Leviticus. Ambitious, yes. Foolish, maybe. But God willing, it will be edifying and maybe cause you to behold the glory of God in a way that you haven't before. Maybe, I'm trusting the Lord will do this, maybe it will cause you to see Jesus in a slightly different light. And above all else, my prayer is that this will stir your heart to offer your worship to God. Listen, in my preparation for this, I saw things in Leviticus that I had no idea were there. It truly was a blessing and not a curse to sit in the book of Leviticus all week. Something that I I chose to do this. Randy didn't tell me, you're going to preach a sermon on the whole book of Leviticus. I chose to do this because I knew there was stuff there and I found even, even more this week. And I want to show you some of these things. And again, hopefully it'll stir your heart to worship the same way that it did for me. There is gold to be mined from Leviticus. Now, here is how I want you to think of this. Okay? We're going to be here for 40 minutes or so. We're not, this isn't going to be three hours in Leviticus. What we're going to do is look at the book of Leviticus from, from 30,000 feet. Now, at times, it may feel like to you as you're listening, that we're deep in the mine looking for gold that's in this book. Trust me, we are doing a quick flyover. Now most of you, you know that our normal pattern here at Doxa is to preach through different books of the Bible, and we'll take months or even years to do that. And when when we're doing that, we're sort of getting a ground level view of what the particular book is teaching us. And I'm grateful that we do things that way. But sometimes it's helpful to zoom out and do a flyover, if you will, for an entire book. And hopefully you're going to see things that you didn't realize were there. I want to show you the beauty of Leviticus from 30,000 feet. So before we we jump in the plane and take off and start looking at things together, let's sort of get our bearings and figure out where we're at. So Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. It contains 27 chapters. And it's the third book of five books of the law known as the Torah. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that make up the Torah. And at this point in biblical history, 
Moses, he's led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they're on their journey to the land that God has promised to give them. What we have in Leviticus is taking place in the middle of these people's trek towards the promised land. Now Leviticus, it's kind of a, a strange word, but the name is actually helpful in helping to describe what's going to be talked about. So Leviticus, it comes from a Latin term that means relating to the Levites or the book of the priest. So, in the most basic sense, this book is describing how the religious and the civil life of the Hebrew people was to function. Now, I'm sure for some of you that sounds really, really interesting, and others, you've already started thinking, where are we going to lunch today? Listen, listen. The book of Leviticus is a lot more practical and impactful to your life as a Christian than you might expect. I want you to understand right here from the beginning, we're going we're gonna to fly over, but right here from the beginning, understand this book is about God's character and his revealed will. It's about God's people understanding what it means to be a people set apart for God's possession and glory. And listen to this, in a really important way, Leviticus establishes a foundation to help us see the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love for us. The cross, Jesus' death and resurrection, that is, that's the pinnacle of God's love. But all the way back in Leviticus, a foundation is established. I think, I think even that as Paul is writing uh, Romans 8 and Ephesians 3 about the love of Christ for his people. Some of you might be familiar with those passages, but as he's writing these, he's obviously, he's rooting those statements in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. But I think in the back of his mind, as someone who is schooled in the law of the Old Testament, I think he's thinking about the book of Leviticus. Also, when Jesus talks about loving our neighbor and treating others the way we want to be treated, you know, those are references to Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Here's my point with all of that. A lot right up here at the beginning. There's a lot of beauty for us to see in Leviticus. So, let's stick with the 30,000-foot illustration here. We're flying over in the plane. Hopefully you have a little bit of idea of what's going on, but let's go ahead, get up, take off in the air, and let's start looking at things in the book of Leviticus together. So, I want to point out to you four big-picture themes that run through the entire book of Leviticus. And I think if we're able to see these four things, we're in good shape to understand the whole book. Now, there are certainly more than four themes. There's a lot of themes that run through the book, but again, I think if we can see these four, we're going to be helped in understanding the rest of the book. So here's the four areas we're going to look at. Sacrifice, atonement, holiness, and presence. Sacrifice, atonement, holiness, and presence. So in that order, let's start looking at Leviticus. Leviticus begins in a world of sacrifice and offerings. Burnt offerings and grain offerings, peace offerings and sin offerings. 
If you have your Bible open, flip over to chapter 1, and let's see this. Leviticus 1, 1 to 2. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. In large part, the first 17 chapters of Leviticus are devoted to explaining the uh, occasions and the procedures that needed to be followed in sacrifice. And it's really easy to get lost in these first few chapters. As I mentioned earlier, my first attempt, I got through maybe chapter 3, and that was it. But these chapters are establishing something absolutely critical. I'm going to need you to hang in here with me for just a minute in order for you to get this, okay? Hang in here with me. From 30,000 feet, here's what we need to see and understand. Leviticus is highlighting the significant relationship between sacrifice and its connection to sin and also what it means to be unclean before God. I'm going to say that again. Leviticus is highlighting the significant, the important relationship between sacrifice and its connection to sin and what it means to be unclean before God. You see, there's a phrase that occurs multiple times throughout the first 15 chapters of this book. and The phrase always occurs uh, following the laws about offering and sacrifice. I want to show that to you here real quick. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 20. This, and it, it's multiple places. You'll probably notice it even as you're looking at this. But look at chapter 4, verse 20. This comes in the context of laws for sin offerings. Leviticus 4.20. It's, it's talking to the priest here. Thus shall he do with the bull, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. Here's the key part that's repeated over and over again. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. So here's, here's the picture of what's happening. Priests have been appointed and instructed to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now there's, there's three parties involved in every sacrifice. You have God, you have the priest, and you have the worshiper. And the priests, they are the mediators between God and his people. And it's through It's through animal sacrifice and the shedding of blood that people can be made clean and restored to God. Here's the big point that I'm driving at. Leviticus establishes that sacrifice is necessary to restore the relationship between God and his people. Leviticus establishes that sacrifice is necessary to restore the relationship between God and and his people. And this is something that the book of Hebrews picks up on in the New Testament. Hebrews 9:22 says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness for sins, forgiveness of sins. Now, I understand this can be sort of a challenging thing for us in modern times to grasp, to sort of wrestle with this this concept. It seems barbaric, maybe even seems a little bit outdated. To some of us, it might come off as gross or disgusting. But I want you to know that what is happening here is a temporary practice. It's temporary. 
that's foreshadowing something infinitely greater. Because here's the problem, and this is a big problem. I'm going to quote from the book of Hebrews again. Hebrews 10.4. Listen to this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. More on that in a minute. This is all building towards something beautiful. For now, what we need to do is look at the most important day of the year when it comes to the entire sacrificial system. Most important day of the year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We've looked at sacrifice. We've touched on atonement already. But now let's, let's fly over to that direction and let's observe this in greater detail. Now, all the sacrifices in, described in Leviticus, um, not all of them have to do with sin. Not all of them. If you read through the first 15 chapters, you're going to see that. But when it comes to chapter 16, when it comes to the Day of, the, of Atonement, everything described here has to do with sin. Now, you should know that the focus of the sacrifices in the, the previous chapters, they had to do with individual needs. Individual needs. Now, in chapter 16, the focus is on making atonement for all the uncleanliness, for all the sin for the corporate nation of Israel. It's for everybody here. Now, I've used the word atonement a few times so far, and I want to define it for you briefly because it's really kind of a complicated word. So just quickly, to make atonement, when we're talking about atonement, we're talking about a cleansing or a covering, or even to ransom something or someone. So the Day of Atonement is about the cleansing and the ransoming of the people of Israel from sin and impurity. And there's quite an elaborate practice that, and procedure that takes place here. This is all in Leviticus chapter 16. And I encourage you, read the entire chapter sometime. It'll provide more context to what I'm talking about this morning. But on this day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest is the key figure. That's important. Keep that in mind. The high priest is the one leading the sacrifices here. And the stakes are extremely high. In verse 2 of chapter 16 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. There's even a story uh, earlier in Leviticus about two priests who did not offer sacrifice in the proper manner and they were no longer with the people of Israel. They died. So if the sacrificial system, the ritual on the Day of Atonement, isn't followed correctly, it is all over for the high priest. So from our, our 30,000 foot view, we aren't going to look at all the intricacies that are involved on this day. However, you should know that this day involves the preparation of the priest. The priest has to be prepared. There's various sin offerings involving goats and a bull and a ram. And the highlight of this day was when the priests entered the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was located. The Ark was the quintessential symbol of God's presence with His people. And the priest would sprinkle blood seven times in the air in front of the Ark itself. 
The day, of the, the day of atonement, that was the only day that this would happen. Bringing sacrifice into, into direct contact with God's presence. This is how chapter 16 ends, verse 34. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once a year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Brothers and sisters, the Day of Atonement is loaded with theological significance for us. Do you see it? Do you see what the Day of Atonement and the entire sacrificial system are pointing to? Do you see what they're foreshadowing? It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. But the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ, once and for all, takes away the sin of his people. That first Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, was the definite day of atonement when our sin was purged once and for all. Jesus fulfills the concept of the sin offering. Jesus offers himself as a substitute for his people. Now, everyone who has Christ as their Lord, listen to this, everyone who has Christ as their Lord has the right that was previously only reserved for the high priest of Israel. Understand the significance of that? That we believers in Christ enjoy a far greater privilege than Aaron or any other high priest in the history of Israel? Our high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that just for a moment with me. Let's do a little uh, contrasting here. Let's think about this. Aaron, the high priest in Leviticus 16, he was a sinner who needed to offer a sacrifice before he could make atonement for the people. Jesus is pure and sinless and needs to offer no sacrifice but himself. The high priest had to repeat the sacrifices regularly with the Day of Atonement taking place once a year. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice that secured permanent forgiveness for sin. And his resurrection secures a new life for his people and ensures that his sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, is good forever. Hebrews 10, 12-14 is good news for us, brothers and sisters. Listen to this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, God's loving nature, it operates in a way that he loves to cleanse the sinner and completely remove any and all traces of sin. That's true under the Old, old Covenant. It's true under the law. And it's true in the work of Christ in the New Covenant. As far as the East is from the West, so does he remove our transgressions from us. The blood of Christ makes us clean. It removes our sin and our shame. Do you see, and we just did this in a couple minutes, do you see how the book of Leviticus lays a foundation for this? 
Do you see how this practice of sacrifice foreshadows and paves the way for Jesus? Oh, it's so beautiful for us to see. Christ cleanses us and he makes us clean by his blood. But there's something happening here. Um, there's something more that's happening here. He's making us holy. Our scripture reading earlier was from Leviticus 19, 1 to 2. I'm going to read that again. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. When God is calling people to holiness, He's calling them to be like Him. Not to be Him, but to be like Him. Holiness is intrinsic to God's character. And in the book of Leviticus, holiness is obtained by the people by obeying the laws and observing the sacrifices that were offered. In a lot of ways, holiness is the motto of Leviticus. The conduct of the people and the way that they observe different aspects of the law shows, it demonstrates, that they do in fact belong to God. Now, there are both similarities and differences in the way that this applies to us. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are made holy. We're made clean. We're set apart. And we're made whole as human beings. Holiness involves a change of nature. Our nature, our desires, our wants, they're changed when we belong to Jesus. In different places in the New Testament, uh, God's people are referred to as saints and the people of God. We're being built up as a spiritual house, and we are a royal priesthood, and we're most certainly made holy in Jesus Christ. But our state, the state of our holiness is expressed in the way that we live our lives. We're not earning our holiness, but we are demonstrating that we've been made holy. Jesus' sacrifice makes us holy, and now we are offering our lives as living sacrifices. Listen, our growth as Christians is, is not expressed in how many theologians we've read, how many Bible verses we can quote. It's not how maturity is, is expressed. It's not how it's demonstrated. Our maturity is demonstrated through obedience to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. We get that messed up all the time, don't we? We think it's the opposite. It's how much do I know? How many old dead people can I quote? That's a sign of my maturity. It's not. Our obedience is a sign of maturity. Obedience to Christ is the mark of a maturing disciples. Or is the mark of a maturing disciple. And oftentimes... Maturing disciples, listen to this church, oftentimes people who are maturing and growing in Christ, they look strange to the rest of the world. They look different. It's been true since the first century. And we have to be okay with being different. When we're walking in obedience to all that Christ teaches, we are imitating our Heavenly Father. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 1.16, he quotes Leviticus directly when he says to his readers, Be holy, for I am holy. The imitation of God 
it is an important theme that unites. It unites the teachings of Leviticus with the entire New Testament. We see that. We see the foundation of this established in Leviticus. Now finally, I want to talk about a theme that permeates the entire book of Leviticus. You may have, you may have already seen this just in what we've talked about, but the reality of God's presence... The reality of God's presence is all over the book of Leviticus. God is always present with Israel in a real way. And at times, his presence even becomes visible. In the sacrificial system, God is present. In the everyday life of the people expressed in, in the law, God is present. In the observation of feasts and festivals that we find in Leviticus 25, God is present. There's a reoccurring, uh, the reoccurring statement that runs in uh, chapters 18, 19, and 20. It says, I am the Lord your God. That shows that all of life is to be lived in the presence of God. And church, for us, we get no greater picture of God's presence than in the incarnation. God's presence was made known in the person of Jesus. And His presence is continually experienced through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Christian, everyone, every one of us enjoys the permanent presence of God in our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen to this. Get this, the same God whose glory and power and love that are on display in Leviticus, that same God, He dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Leviticus shows us that a distinguishing mark of the people of God is that the presence of God is with them. A distinguishing mark of the people of God is that the presence of God is with them. Now, I can't help but wonder at this point if there are people in this room who are asking the question, does God's Spirit dwell within me? How can I know that His Spirit dwells in me? This is worth a longer conversation, but let me just pose to you one simple question that truly only you can answer this. No one can answer this for you. You have to answer it yourself. So here's the question. At your core, at your core, do you desire to know God and to obey Him? At your core, do you desire to know God and to obey Him? Jesus, who is God, Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep and his people, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Friends, only someone who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit desires to know Jesus and follow him. Not perfectly, maybe not all the time, but there's, even if it's just a flicker of a flame, there's something there that says, I want to know him and I want to follow him. Leviticus 26 is an important chapter when it comes to the presence of God. There is so much significance to this chapter 
Um, but here are described uh, the blessings for obedience to God and the punishment that comes from disobedience. Um, there's, there's a lot of questions posed by this chapter that we won't see from our 30,000-foot perspective. They're significant, they're important, but they're out of our view today. What I want you to know, and chapter 26 shows this, that the heart of blessing, the heart of blessing is the presence of God in your life. It's not material wealth or possessions. It's not success and fame. It's knowing that the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's knowing that He will never leave you nor forsake you. God's presence with the Israelites, ultimately, it was conditional. It's conditional. While our communion with God, our experience of His presence, it, it can be disrupted by our sin. That disrupts our experience of God's presence. Our union, our union and experience with His, His covenantal presence can never be severed when we're in Jesus Christ. Our union with, with God through Christ, once we have it, it can never be severed. I want you to hear that today, Christian. Hear that. Your unrepentant sin, it may be disrupting the way you experience the presence of God. But your union with Him is secure. Like, like the prodigal son, turn from your sin, come back to the Father. I also imagine there are people here today who have, who have never received Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. You've trusted, you, you've, you've never trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sin and the removal of shame. Friend, if that is you, your, your sin remains on you, and because of it, you cannot stand before a holy God. But this, this holy God that we've been talking about this morning, this holy God that we see in Leviticus, He's not a distant God. He's not distant. He's kind. He's merciful. He's loving. And he's made a way for you to be reconciled to Him. Trust in Christ today for forgiveness. And, and reconciliation with your heavenly Father. Repent. Turn from your sin and cling to Christ. Trust in Christ for salvation. Church, the book of Leviticus, it teaches us that the relationship between a holy God and sinful people is maintained through sacrifice. And Christ's sacrifice once and for all Christ's sacrifice once and for all has made atonement for our sin. And because of this, we've been made holy. We're called to live holy lives. All the while, the presence of God dwells with us as his beloved children. You know, every week when we take communion together, we have an opportunity to remember all that Jesus has done for us taking our sin on himself on the cross and raising in victory through his resurrection. We remember that he's coming, coming again and one day we will feast together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we take this communion meal this morning, be strengthened, Christian. Be spiritually nourished on the body and blood of Christ. Communion will be served at two stations here at the front. Uh, so the band is going to come up and lead in a song. And as you feel led, you can make your way forward uh, to receive the bread and the juice. And then make your way back to your seat. 
and I will lead us in taking this meal together. If you're a believer in Christ, this meal is open to you. Uh, if you're, you're not someone who is, if you're someone who is not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, uh, during this time I encourage you, think about what it means to have a relationship with your Heavenly Father and what it means that apart from Christ, my sin and my shame remain on me. That's what the Bible teaches. And if you have questions, I'd love to talk with you or pull someone aside before you leave about what it means to know and trust in Christ for salvation. I'm going to pray, and then we'll continue in worship. Oh, Father, thank you that Jesus was and is the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Father, I pray that as we, we think about, as we looked at what Leviticus is teaching, that it, it will cause us, Lord, maybe not in this moment, maybe some point later this week, it will cause us to see Christ in a different light. And it will cause us to, to even more fully worship Him for all that He is. Father, I pray that You would bless the rest of our time for Your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.